Our mini-series of interviews continues with an exploration into the motivation to relocate and teach internationally. We are sitting down with several international educators to examine how careers and interests have been shaped by decisions to teach abroad. We look at the positives of teaching internationally, as well as the challenges our educators have experienced along the way. We are delighted to be speaking to, Pen, um, to Ken Page, an experienced head of primary education across many regions, Taiwan, Turkey and Phuket, to name just a few. In addition, Ken has held the position of Director and Lead Improvement Partner with the Council of British International Schools, COBIS. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for meeting with us today. So I wanted to start by asking you about your motivations to leave a teaching position in the UK for your first international position. Yes, that was quite some years ago now. In 1999, I think it occurred to me. Um, I'd been teaching for some time at the point, uh, seven years, mm -hmm. and I was on the verge of becoming a deputy head teacher, I think. I think that was the next step for me in my career. Mm -hmm. And my problem, if that's the right word, was I was working so many hours at the time, it was well over 50 hours a week, mm -hmm. I remember. And everyone was telling me that deputy heads would have a far greater workload. Certainly in those days, there was no non-contact time. A deputy head would be in full-time teaching plus deputy head as well. Wow. And I just didn't feel quite ready to put in that commitment. I wanted more of an adventure from life. So I applied to an advert in the TES to teach in America. Um, and it was only for one or two years. Mm. I thought I'll just take a year or two out so I go and teach in America that'll be fun and then come back and get back to the serious business of my career mm -hmm. so I went to America and didn't really come back <laughs> so from America where did you go and you know what was it about your experience in America that you really enjoyed and then where did you go next I, it was liberating in America um through the 90s which perhaps many people don't remember now in education we moved away from a relatively free teacher autonomy approach, mm -hmm. I'm talking about primary education, certainly, um, to a, a far stricter teacher, teacher contents, not the children type mm -hmm. approach, the literacy hour, the numeracy hour, these things were coming in to try to flatten the bell curve to get more children to a, a minimal standard. Yeah, And it felt like teachers had less autonomy and less control of what they were doing. And when I went to America, I felt I had more control mm. And at the same time, I didn't feel I, because I was learning a new system. Mm. I didn't feel in such a place as to want to take such a great degree of control as well, if that makes sense. So I had more control, but didn't feel I needed that much more control. I could do my job very easily, I felt. Yeah. I was treated like an NQT, felt really easy. Yeah. The weekends were my own, and I travelled the length and breadth of the USA in two years. Fantastic. No. And so from America, where was your next position? I then went to Damascus in Syria. Wow. Um, I, I didn't know when I was leaving America what I would do. Would I go back to the UK? And I thought I'd look internationally. Mm -hmm. I ended up, I applied for a job in Nigeria because I thought Africa sounded exciting. Yes. And during the interview, there was somebody else who said, I'm the head of a school in Damascus. Would you also consider that as part of this interview? So, yeah. Sure. And I was offered the job in Damascus, which was deputy head. So I ended up back on that deputy head cycle yes. anyway that I'd expected. And how did that compare to your teaching practice in the UK? The the teaching was more like the early 90s style. So it yeah. was freer. Yeah. Um, I felt you could teach the children, as I say, yeah. children more than the content. Um, I, I, yes, I enjoyed that freedom. 
Yeah. And I, I worked be... less hours. Um, yeah. Something that has been talked about with other people here. Uh, the, the longest hours I've worked on a week by week basis were as a class teacher in England. Mm. That's incredible, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, to have a um a position in a senior leadership in senior leadership and and be working less hours <laughs> as a class. Yeah, I mean there is a difference. I think in senior leadership there is no off time. Mm. So certainly in international schools, you'd be on twenty four seven. So through the weekends, yeah. you're still contactable. Through the nights, you're still contactable. I worked for a period in uh, a situation where there were some um, security issues mm. and I was contactable through the night. I mean, people um, might call me in the early hours in the morning. So as a school leader, you have to be available all the time. And mm. as a teacher, I had the right or the ability to draw my own boundaries. And maybe it's because I'm drawing my own boundaries. Maybe I worked too hard for myself, but I drew boundaries so broad that I was working consistently maybe yeah. 55 hours a week. Mm. So how have um, your experiences teaching internationally driven your career path and, and your interests? In terms of my career path, as I say, I, when I left England, I think I was on the verge of deputy headship. That's, that's what yeah. people were telling me. That's how it felt. Um, and I went overseas for two years and then became a deputy head. So that didn't really change that. And then I became a head teacher and that probably would have recurred had I stayed in England, I don't know for sure, but yeah. it seems likely. Yes. What it has done, though, working in SAS, is opened my eyes to a broader range. So I think had I stayed working in England, I was previously in West Berkshire. Mm -hmm. I just probably stayed in West Berkshire or Oxfordshire, that sort of an area. And working internationally, my eyes are open to the whole world. So I have parents coming from China, from South Africa, from America, from Russia, and I'm getting all these different perspectives on education that I think I would have missed had I stayed in England. So my my thoughts about education developed in, in a broader way, I think. And then my involvement with COBIS enabled me to have a, in my own small way, a minimal global impact as opposed to just a school impact in education, which is quite exciting to think of, really. Yeah, absolutely. Could you tell us a little bit more about your work with COBIS? Yes, um, I moved to uh, be head of the British Embassy School in Ankara in 2013. That was a COBIS school. That's why I got involved with COBIS. The mm -hmm. school was a long-standing COBIS school. Mm -hmm. And I immediately put myself forward. I saw an opportunity to be a director. There was, a, there was an election. And I put myself forward. In fact, I was co-opted onto the board of directors. Fantastic. So I was immediately involved in COBIS. And again, it's that old-fashioned almost that the idea that teaching is what we want of it and we the teachers we the profession make what the choices that we want within a within a broader context mm. and I found that very liberating and exciting so I stayed with Cobis even when I left that school I went to my next school the British International School Phuket which is not a Cobis school mm -hmm. I maintained the relationship with Cobis and became a um, joined their accreditation program mm -hmm. First is an appear, a peer accreditation that's somebody as part of the team who would visit schools. And then increasingly as a lead improvement partner who would help lead the accreditation process for certain schools. And I think that kind of leads us nicely to talk about then um, how your experiences have driven your values as a head in international settings. So all these experiences with COBIS 
and your other teaching experience across many different regions how did that shape your values yeah a lot yes <laughs> um, I, I think I, I think I I find the, the importance of values is underrated I I think and, and many schools now it's become a bit of a buzzword schools have their mission statement a vision statement to the list mm. of values but I I don't know if they use the values that much when I see them. It's just the same as with a mission statement or a vision statement. Sometimes they're just something on the wall and are they lived? Now, having, as I said, worked overseas and meeting people from all around the world who are bringing their children to the school in which I work, mm. how can I lead a school that satisfies all these different contextual and, and um, different ideas from different parts of the world? And, and so there's a synthesis, I think. And the synthesis at primary education, my background's primary education, is fundamentally pretty much everybody I met wanted their children to be happy at school. So then you think, what does that mean? What 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 is happy at mm. school? And that, that's a whole big conversation. There's probably not enough time to go into at the moment. But it seems to me one of the ways to be happy, you, you can't mandate happiness the same as you can't. Uh, wasn't it the American... Americans have said the pursuit of happiness because you can't say somebody should be happy, but somebody has the right to try to be happy. Mm. Equally, we can't make everybody happy in a school all the time. But what we can do is try to create conditions in which more people are more likely to be happy more of the time. Mm. What are those conditions? Well, there's a safeguarding aspect, of course, um, and keeping children safe. But then, uh, then I come to the values. So it's do children feel valued? Are they treated with respect and kindness or... Mm honesty or whatever values you choose to to choose mm -hmm. are they shared with the community are they lived in the community is that the thrust of what you're doing so i tended to work with the idea i used to have this mantra that the school should be a happy school in which everyone is safe treated with respect and encouraged to learn mm -hmm. and i used to work on the basis that if everyone if all the children felt safe they all felt treated with respect and were all learning in some way then they probably would be happy as well and so it's a kind of backwards way around and that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? When you when yes. you say it that way, and that really drove the way that you chose to lead then that school in particularly in Phuket, kind of we're talking now. But did that was that how? Yeah, I mean that predates Phuket. So I mean, I mean, I did that in Ankara, and to some extent, I did that in Taiwan and in Syria, and maybe to a bit in Malaysia as well. Um, the whole thing emerged over time to yeah. that kind of mantra. But yes, it. It was a fundamental thing behind everything we did. I used to plan staff meetings. The agenda would be, okay, first of all, the safety. Second of all, respect. Thirdly, learning. Mm. So, And you categorise the features in the staff meeting according to those criteria, for example. So it should just drive through everything you do. The children would know this. It would be, they would get bored. Oh, yeah, respect. Oh, respect and kindness. But it ultimately obviously resonated that it was it was something that was repeated so often that it kind of became the bones of the school if they're saying oh respect and kindness i guess it really was then in like the essence of, of everything that they were doing yes yes yeah. and parents would parrot it back at me parents had more yeah. upset about something and parents can get upset about things certainly in, in the international world that they would say but you say you stand for respect and i'd have to pause and say well yeah you're right yeah. <laughs> so, okay let, let's rethink this Am yeah. I being respectful or, or could I be more respectful? Mm. Um, parents um, and then some of the challenges potentially that parents can raise kind of 
that leads me quite nicely into asking you about other challenges that you've experienced then you know there's an incredible opportunities within mm. working internationally but also lots of challenges could you tell me some of the challenges that you have faced yeah there, there are the the kind of headline challenges the the big ones that people talk about so for example i was in america for september the 11th and all the wow um, concern around that then i moved to syria and we were evacuated within a year because mm. of the attack on iraq in yes. 2003 and then whilst also was in syria there was an assassination of a, a senior politician in beirut which caused uh, riots and demonstrations in mm. damascus there was a there was gunfire there was a gun battle in the street i heard it close to my house in yes. damascus um i was also in damascus at the start of the civil war uh, and my family my wife and children were evacuated and i stayed behind to lead the school through till the summer holiday yeah so there were the big headline things like that the earthquakes and snakes in the school and typhoons and these sorts of things but i think some of the bigger challenges being an expat are simply that you're away from home when there are big events you're mm. away from home when there are big events and you you can't be part of that so i was away from home when my mother died yes of course i flew back for the funeral but i was away for much of the time in a way that i'd not expected that was within a year of me moving overseas mm. and subsequently a few years later i missed my father's wedding which mm. has lived with me for quite a long time i missed my father's wedding because i couldn't fly back to the uk in time yeah um so you miss family events mm. uh, and i think that's one of the biggest challenges that people overlook and is not really there on a day-to-day -day basis but every now and then it pops up every yeah. now and then it pops up and then you do feel a long way from home yes um that's a real array of quite significant challenges that, yeah. that somebody who's teaching internationally um will face particularly you know missing personal things you know things happening yes. with family you talked about some incredible experiences that you've lived through. What was it like leading through events like um, the um, the evasion in Iraq and and like nine eleven? That must have been nine eleven. I was not leading through that, so I was uh, a class teacher in a school. Yeah. One, when... I it's what struck me about nine eleven has lived with me for a long time. This is maybe going yeah. off track slightly. I was in a small town called Greensboro in North Carolina. So probably most people listening to this have not heard of Greensboro, North mm. Carolina, but they will know about the September 11th attacks. Yes. And what was striking to me at the time was so many people in Greensboro said, well, we're next. We're next on the list of targets. Mm. I said, really? Greensboro? Um, yeah. The World Trade Center, I can understand. The Pentagon, I can understand. These are world things. But Greensboro... And they said, yes. And they came up with some sort of economical arguments. Maybe I think it was a storage center for fuel on the eastern seaboard. Right. But that fear running through people that we are next that wasn't really sensible, wasn't really, wasn't logical. Mm. It, it, fear had taken over. Yes. And I, I spotted that in a way that I think helped me through things like the attack on Iraq or the onset of the civil war. Okay, mm. what is reasonable? fear in this situation and what's not a reasonable fear what what can we manage mm. so strangely september 11th helped me in that it was a terrible event don't get me wrong i, I wish it hadn't happened of course it's very bad indeed but dealing with it helped me deal with the subsequent yes problems yes. 
put them into context I suppose yeah yeah um what, what an incredible career you have had um and so uh, I wanted to ask as well what advice would you give to somebody who was considering teaching internationally well the first is absolutely do it do it do it, it it's it's eye-openingly wonderful yes um Having said that, there are lots of schools internationally now. There are lots of international schools of varying quality. It's become a, a marketplace. It's a way to make money. Mm. So it would be good to pick your school wisely. Yes. There are schools that are good to work at and schools that are less good to work at. Mm. So I, I'd look for things like accreditation. Are they accredited by COBIS, for example? Are they accredited? Are they members of FOBIS or BSME or, or, or other organisations? Mm. So have a look at their values, really, as well. Yeah. But if you can get yourself into a decent international school, you'll, you'll earn more money. So you'll have more money in your pocket. It might be tax-free. Mm. Um. So you'll probably have a better standard of life than you would do in the UK. Mm -hmm. But you'll be enriched professionally because it comes back to this idea that you are teaching. You're teaching in a way that you think is probably more or less the right way to teach. Of course, you're still in the context. You will, If you're a teacher, you've got a head teacher. You've got a school community that you have to yes. meet their needs. But you have a greater flexibility to meet their needs than I understand you do now in the UK. Yes. I've taught in the UK for 23 years. I may be wrong, but that's my understanding of it. Yeah. Well, um, so there are joys. The joys of working overseas far, far outweigh the negatives. I also met my wife overseas, uh, had two children overseas. Yes. It's been a joy for me. Yeah. Is your wife a teacher also or, or not? She is, but she's yeah. not British. So she was a teacher of English in Indonesia. She's an Indonesian. Yeah. And incredible, then, you're able to travel together and, and teach, I imagine, then, in all these different places together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are times where she hasn't been able to get a job straight away. We've moved and I've got a job and then she's got one subsequently because yeah. our job pays more. Yes. Um, but th that still has worked really well for us. And now here we are, we've moved back to the UK. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's back to UK. For my wife, this is a new adventure in a new country. Yeah. She's never lived here before. Yeah. So we still got that joy of settling into a new place. Yes, yeah. Okay, and I, it has been so wonderful to talk to you today and learn a bit more about your experiences. And I think it will be um, it will be really interesting and a great insight for others to to have a flavour of what it's like to teach internationally. Um, I wanted to finish with some quick uh, fire questions to get some of your thoughts. So yeah. um, to start, what do you think, in person or remote learning? Oh, in person. <laughs> yes uh noisy or quiet classrooms um you don't want to be too far extreme of either but i want some noise <laughs> yes not silence or, yeah not silence some noise yes. <laughs> um your favorite subject history student sports day or students results day sports day love of subject or love of teaching love of teaching Excellent. Oh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a, a fantastic discussion. Um, we um, have finished everything that we're going to ask you today. So thanks again, Ken. It's been a pleasure. And, and to your last point about, you know, people thinking about working overseas, I don't know if this mm. is something that can be done, but 
if anyone wanted to reach out and ask me a question about it, I, I'm happy for them to contact me. You can find me on LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest way. Yes. Um, oh, I'm nice. happy to engage with anybody who's just wondering about it or wants some advice. I'll help. Yeah. yeah. Oh, brilliant. Thank you so much.